all stand. Boy, that's a good one to get us woke up on a rainy Sunday morning. Amen. Are you glad to be here? Say, I'm glad that you're here. Let's have our men that will come and let's just gather around the altar and take this service to the Lord. The same one that raised Lazarus from the dead is the same one that's with us today. And he is able to do in our hearts just exactly what we need him to do. So, Whatever your needs are, I want you to know there's somebody able to meet your needs. And so let's open our hearts up to what he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we know you. And we're so grateful that you are the God that you are. You are God. And Lord, you're able to raise from the dead. You're able to change lives. If you could raise Lazarus from the dead, I know you can do something for somebody in this room today. And maybe somebody is here at the end of the rope. Lord, let them meet you today. Maybe somebody here today needs just to get a word from you about something. I pray today, give them what they need. Whatever the purpose and whatever the need in their life, I pray today that you'll meet that need. Just magnify yourself. Just be yourself in this service today. Open our hearts to all that you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.
Let's turn around and shake hands and fellowship. Be sure to let our visitors know how glad we are to have them.
Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen to the message in this song, it's called Trophy of Grace.
Oh, man. 
Aren't you glad for his saving grace this morning? Amen. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering. We're glad that you're visiting with us today and those that are visiting. We are certainly thrilled about you being in service. And we would like for you, if you would, please, just to take a moment and fill out a visitor's card. And if you were given a bulletin this morning, there's a card in there that you can use. If not, there's some cards in the back of the pews. If you'll take one, fill it out, and drop an offering plate in just a moment, we'd appreciate it so much. But we'd like to know who you are, and we'd like to send you some information this week about the church. Let me add one name to the hospital list there. Kevin Keith is at Tri-County Hospital, and uh, been having some problems in kidney stones. So remember Kevin and be putting him on your prayer sheet. Also, I need uh, the deacons to meet today at about 10 minutes to 6, and because uh, we're going to have to change our deacons meeting next Sunday, but we need to meet about 10 minutes to 6 to finalize some things on the building. And let me just say about the building, Lord willing, and if everything goes according to schedule this week, everything will be complete by next Sunday. But uh, it's really going to be a blessing. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing for us, but uh, if everything falls according to the schedule, we'll have it all done. There's some more work to do in the lobby, the finishing it out. And, of course, there's some more work to do out here at the drive through been nice to have that done this morning, wouldn't it? Amen. And, but, uh, Lord willing, it will all be done next Sunday. So we're excited about that. Let's pray now. And you give today. Be faithful in your giving. And, again, deacons, don't forget to meet me at about 10 minutes to 6. Father, we thank you today. For all that you've done, thank you for your grace. Every one of us today are trophies of your grace. The only thing we have to talk about or brag about is your grace, and we thank you for it. Bless the offering now. Meet every need in Jesus' name. Amen. to 
so low that I couldn't see daylight when all I could do was groan before the Lord and we talked about in our class this morning how the Holy Spirit carries even our groanings to the throne when we don't know where to go what we need to see is the cross of Calvary and the suffering of Christ he gives us the power to live for him the power to go on that resurrection power
Trust you, I will. I will trust you, Lord. 
Let's open our Bibles to Genesis 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, the book of Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, make mention, I want to encourage you to be careful as you go out. We've got that ditch out there. Then our ushers demonstrated for you a little while ago that one of the doors don't work. (laughs) We've got one side shut off, so we put an object lesson. They say if you can write it and see it and hear it at the same time, uh, that uh, really improves your ability to remember. But uh, this site is closed due to the construction there, but do want you to be careful. I've really sensed a uh, presence of the Lord in our hearts this morning, just ministering to hearts and uh, just really dealing with areas in our life. And I want you to know, uh, whenever the Lord is around, He has His own unique way of just coming to where we're at and just really getting hold of our hearts about things. And, and I have sensed the presence of the Lord here today. He's a wonderful God. He's a wonderful Lord. And uh, He's a God that is always there. He knows where we're at. He knows our needs. And, and I'm so glad that, that He knows what we need. He knows how to meet us. And we can trust Him and lean on Him and just put our lives into His hands knowing that He's in charge of it all. And isn't that a blessing to be able to approach life that way knowing that uh, life is not a series of accidents, but it's a series of appointments. And as we follow Him, we just trust Him with it, and what a blessing that is. But I have really sensed the presence of the Lord. My own heart was ministered to, and I know that He's ministered to many, many of your hearts, and I'm thankful for it. Well, I want you to look in Genesis 2. Would you stand as we honor the reading of His Word? As you know, the month of August has been our emphasis on the family we've been thinking about and sharing with you a few sermons that I have entitled Home Improvement. And we've been trying to look at areas of our marriage that we want to improve and want to set as a goal to improve. We began by thinking about improving love in a marriage. Ephesians 5 talks about love in a marriage. And we looked at improving love in a marriage. And then we looked at improving romance in a marriage. And we looked at, uh, took a formula from a, a story about the church at Ephesus. They had left their first love. Literally, they had left their honeymoon love. They got over that uh, fiery love they had for the Lord. And, but we drew from that prophetic story, and historical story, an event, a formula for improving romance in a marriage. Now, this morning, I want to bring the third and the final one in this emphasis in August, and I want us to talk about improving commitment in a marriage. And everything I have said over the past two weeks will fall by the wayside if you do not get a hold of this one. Because if there is going to be an improvement of love in our marriages, it's because we're committed to improving love in our marriage. And if we're going to improve romance in our marriage, now, how many of you have been doing your homework? You've been doing your weekly assignments? I tell you what I have. I went and got Sherry new hoe this week to work in the garden. Amen. <laughs> Sister Pat told me then he got her a new pair of clippers for the flowers and whatever and different ones. But uh, I've been encouraged. I really have. I, some of you have amazed me. You really have. You've, uh, you've encouraged my heart. You've been telling me, well, I've been doing this and we've been doing that and whatever. And, but I tell you one thing. I sat down on the bridge every night this week and didn't see a single one of you down there. You're supposed to be down there. <laughs> Amen. But it's been good. I have enjoyed it. But again, if there is not commitment to marriage and improving our marriage, 
then everything is going to fall by the wayside. Look at Genesis 2, verse 24. These are familiar verses, and I'll share with you the New Testament twin of this. But Genesis 2, verse 24. The Bible said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now hold your place and turn to the book of Ephesians 5. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we have the New Testament twin of this said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Thank you. you. May be seated. Let's pray. And this morning, let's think about improving commitment in marriage. And I hope you got a sheet of paper. You got your bulletin there. I want you to take notes. I want you to jot down three things in a moment that I want you to make a commitment to. But let's pray. Our Father, as we've gathered here this morning, I have sensed that gracious working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to bring us to the Lord Jesus to make us honest with ourselves and honest with our needs, just to bring us here and to work in our hearts and to minister to hearts. I thank you, Lord, for what you've done. You've ministered in many ways. Lord, those that have ministered to us today, some of them have ministered with a very heavy heart. And as they have ministered to us, they have also ministered to themselves. But Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing and what you've already done in this service we thank you, Lord, for this month and what it's meant to our homes and what it's meant to our marriages. And, Lord, we come this morning as we conclude this emphasis for this month in the Sunday morning services. I pray that you would seal it all in our hearts today and that you would put it deeply in our hearts and help us today to get a grip and a grasp of the thought that is before us today and help us to realize today that this is the key to everything else we've talked about, that without this, Lord, we'll never have the things we've tried to learn about over the past couple of weeks. So, Lord, speak to us today. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit that we need to deliver the Word of God and give us the power of the Holy Spirit that we need to be able to hear the Word of God and to apply it in our lives. So bless our marriages now, for it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask these things. Amen. I have always enjoyed reading about Sir Winston Churchill. He's one of my favorite characters in history. But I think about on one occasion, Churchill was attending a banquet. And there were several distinguished guests that were there. And so they began asking these guests different things, in particular Churchill being the prime minister of England. Prime minister would be like our president here in the United States. But someone asked Churchill an unusual question. But I love the response that he gave. Someone looked at Churchill and he said, Mr. Churchill, if you could be someone else, who would you want to be? So Mr. Churchill, if you could be someone else, who would you want to be? Without a moment's hesitation, this is what he said. I would want to be Lady Churchill's second husband. I love the answer. For it was a most unique way of saying how much he loved his wife. And his answer said that that which brought him the greatest joy and that which brought him the greatest happiness and satisfaction was not being the prime minister of England, but his marriage and his relationship with his wife. I wonder this morning, if you had it to do all over again, would you pick the same person? 
And if you had it to do all over again, would you do the same thing? And if you could be someone else, who would you want to be? Would you want to be married to the same person again? I believe that you can, and I believe that's the way marriage is intended to be and what it ought to be. But someone has said that marriage is like a cage. One sees the birds outside desperate to get in, and those on the inside equally desperate to get out. Well, I want to say this morning that a marriage is not something that is to be so disgusting and so dissatisfying that you want to get out of it, but something that is so delightful and something that is so enriching and something that is so exciting that you would never want to get out. You see, marriage, as we have tried to see over the past few weeks, a marriage intended by God is intended to be one of the most satisfying, one of the most gratifying, and one of the most enjoyable and edifying relationships known to man. Again, it's not to be an experience that is so disappointing, an experience so disgusting and so dissatisfying that you would want out of it. Now, you may feel like one woman I read about that woke her husband up in the middle of the night. She said, Henry, wake up said, I have just had a terrible nightmare. And she, I, she said, I dreamed I was at an auction for husbands. She said, Henry, one husband went for $10,000, and others were going for sums in the millions. Well, that kind of uh, got his attention, so he raised up in his bed, and he said, well, honey, what were husbands like me bringing? And she said, that's what was so disgusting. They were taking ones like you, tying them in a bundle, and selling for a dollar a bunch. Well, that may be the way some of you feel this morning, but again, I want to say to you that marriage should not be a disgusting experience, but a wonderful experience. I think of something J. Paul Getty once said. J. Paul Getty was a very wealthy man, but he once made the statement, I'd trade my fortune for one happy marriage. And I think of how sad a man to have so much, but yet to have so little. Well, I want to emphasize again this morning that you can have a good marriage. And not only can you have a good marriage, but you can have a great marriage, the kind of marriage that God intended you to have. I think about a sociologist by the name of John Elf Cooper and also Peggy Harrop. And in one of their studies or in one of their books, when they joint wrote together, they suggested five different categories of marriages. I'm going to put them on the screen here, and I want you to jot them down. As I go through them, I want you to think, what category would my marriage be in? But anyway, Mr. Cooper and Mrs. Harrop, they gave what they call five categories of marriages. The first one is this. It's what they call a devitalized marriage, a devitalized marriage. This is a marriage that is a placid, half-alive relationship. It is a marriage that is devoid of emotional involvement, so there's neither conflict nor passion in that marriage. You could say that individuals in this marriage are to be thought of as married singles. It's a devitalized marriage. A second category of marriage they give is what they call the conflict-habituated marriage. This is the kind of marriage in which the comp couple is constantly fighting, never getting along, but they're constantly fighting in their relationship. A conflict, habituated marriage. There's a third type of marriage they give, and that's what they call the passive, congenial marriage. Now, this is a marriage that is very comfortable, has very few ups and downs, but however, the involvement in the marriage is not exciting, and usually in that marriage, there's a humdrum routine that is set in, and has lasted for many, many years and will last for many, many years. A passive, congenial marriage. 
But then they give a fourth type of marriage. It's what they call a total marriage. Now, this is a marriage that is characterized by constant togetherness and mutual interest. Every experience of life is shared with each other, and little or nothing is done separately. It is a relationship that is very intense because of the closeness, but it's also a relationship that is very, very fragile. Any minor change or alteration can rock the boat. It's what they call a total marriage. But a fifth and a final category of marriage they give is what they call a vital marriage. And they describe how that each person in this marriage is involved in the other's interests, but they're not locked into the restrictions of the total marriage. They share roles within the marriage. Thoughts and feelings are open to each other, and communication is extensive between the two. They like to do things together and do things as much as they can together, but yet each of them has maintained their own individuality and uniqueness. Husband and wife, they cooperate in running the home, rearing the children, and making decisions. And they found that in what they call a vital marriage, that it usually contains reasonably well-adjusted people who are willing to take the risk of making changes to enhance and to enrich their marriage. It's what they call a vital marriage. Now, there's something in that vital marriage that I want us to be the point of our focus today. And as they said, a vital marriage they described as usually containing reasonably well-adjusted people who are willing to take the risk of making changes to enhance and to enrich their marriage. If I could put it another way, what Mr. Cooper and Ms. Harriff was calling a vital marriage, if I could put it this way, it's where two people, husband and wife, are committed to having the kind of marriage they ought to have and the kind of marriage that God intended them to be. They're willing to take the risk. That is, they are committed to do whatever is necessary to have a good marriage. They are committed to build a good relationship. They're committed to developing a good relationship. They're committed to having the kind of marriage that God intended marriage to be. That's the kind of marriage that I want to talk about today where there is a commitment to have that kind of marriage. A number of years ago, Dr. Nick Stennett, chairman of the Department of Human Development and Family at the University of Nebraska, he did a family strengths research project. And he did this project to find out what makes a family strong. And it was a very intensive study, a study that included black families as well as white families. It involved families in South America, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, South Africa, as well as the United States. There was only one criterion for being included in the sample of strong families. The families had to rate themselves very high in marriage happiness and also in their satisfaction in parent-child relationship. And they studied nearly 3,000 families. And I might add, the study was not limited to Christian families. But in all, they studied more than 3,000 thousand families and when all the information was analyzed they found that there were six main qualities in a strong family I'm going to put them on the screen I want you to write these six things down he found there were six main qualities in a strong family the first one and these are not necessarily in the order that they, he gave, gave them but here are the six things he found that strong families number one spend time together he found that one of the key elements in a strong family and one of the things about a strong family is they spend time together. Number two, they have good family communication. He found that strong families have good family communication. 
Number three, he found that strong families express appreciation to each other. They spend time together, they have good family communication, and they express appreciation to each other. He also found that strong families, and I found this interesting, they have a spiritual commitment. He found that strong families usually are very spiritual families, and they have a spiritual commitment in their home. You've seen a little sign, the family that prays together stays together. Well, he found that to be true. They have a spiritual commitment. He also found that, number five, they're able to solve problems in a crisis. And we're going to talk about problems in just a little while. But he found that when there were problems in a family, that a strong family had the ability of handling those problems and dealing with those problems. They were able to solve problems in a crisis. And then the last one, which was really not the last one, this was the first one that he mentioned. But I put it last for emphasis. Number six, they are committed to the family. As I said, that was really the first thing he found about a strong family is that strong families are committed to the family. Now, what is one of the keys to a strong marriage? What is one of the keys to a strong family? It's this one simple word. It is the word commitment. Charles Swindoll, in his book, Growing Wise in Fi Family Life, writes, he said, my research of recent months confirms two findings. One, a fulfilling and happy family is as strong today as it was 50 years ago, maybe even stronger. And two, effective family life does not just happen. It is the result of deliberate intention, determination, and practice, end quote. Now, may I say that last line again? He found that the effective family just does not happen. It is the result of deliberate intention, determination, and practice. In other words, he's talking about that a strong family requires commitment. There is a commitment to marriage. There is a commitment to being a strong family. You take our home improvement series. As I mentioned a while ago, we've been talking about improving both love and romance in a marriage. May I say it again? That without commitment, there will be no improving of either love or romance in your marriage. You will not seek to improve love in your marriage if you, are not, you do not make the commitment to try to improve your marriage. There will be no increasing or improving of romance in your marriage if you don't make the commitment to do what is necessary to have romance in your marriage. They must, if there's, going to be, if there's going to be love in our marriages like we've talked about, if there's going to be romance in our marriages like we talked about, then there must be a commitment to have love and romance in our marriage. Now, you look at our text here this morning. I read you two verses of Scripture. I called them twins. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament verse. They're both the same, basically just worded a little bit different. But they carry the ideal of commitment. Genesis 2.24 we read, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Ephesians 5, 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now look at those two texts for just a moment. In Genesis 2, 24, you have a leaving and a cleaving. Now what you have in that leaving and cleaving is a decision that has been made to leave father and mother. And when that decision has been made to leave father and mother, then a commitment has been made to become either a husband or a wife. The decision has been made to leave one relationship, parent and child, 
and a commitment is made to begin a brand new relationship, husband and wife. Now, the word cleave that is used in Genesis 2.24 is an interesting word. It literally means to be cemented together. It's a word that was used to speak, uh, speak of something being stuck together, of something being cemented or glued together, as we might say. Ephesians 5.31 does not use the word cleave, but it uses the word joined. And the word joined that is used in Ephesians 5.31 is, is basically the same word, same idea. It literally means to be glued together. In Genesis 2.24, it talks about a man leaving his father and mother and being cemented together with his wife. And Ephesians 5.31 is talking about man leaving his father and mother and being glued to his wife. Again, the ideal is that of two people, a man and a woman, they enter into a relationship that's called marriage. Thus, they become husband and wife. And as husband and wife, they enter into a relationship that is to become such a bond, so strongly attached that it is inseparable. As the Scripture said, they become as one flesh. You have two people. You have a man and a woman. But they enter into a relationship that becomes so bonded so glued together, so cemented together that those two individuals become as one individual. They begin to experience that principle of oneness in the flesh or oneness in the marriage. That's the, what he's talking about. There's this bonding together. Now, let me say this. Are you with me now? Are you following me? Are you still with me? I want to say that this gluing together is not the fast, drying kind of glue. As you know, a couple can, have, can stand in the wedding altar and they can say their vows and leave but not be cemented or glued together. For you see, this cleaving and being joined together is a process. It's a process that is achieved because a couple is committed to having this extraordinary bond in their relationship. They're two people with two different lifestyles coming together. They say their vows, and that is the initial commitment they make. That's the initial promise of commitment they give. But then they begin a process of learning and growing together and becoming glued together and cemented together, forming such a bond that that bond is inseparable. That's the ideal. And the reason that bond develops there is because both individuals are committed to having that kind, as I said, extraordinary bond between a man and woman. As someone has said, it is much easier to be pronounced husband and wife than to become husband and wife. The pronouncement only takes a few minutes, but the becoming takes years. And another said the bonds of matrimony are like any other bonds. They take a while to mature. And another said, marriage is a school that we enroll in, not a course we complete as soon as we say, I do. No, there is this commitment there. That one flesh, man leaving a man and a woman, leaving their father and mother and cleaving together, being joined together, is a process whereby two have been committed to build a relationship whereby they are cemented together and be develop a bond that becomes... There is a com commitment there. I want you to listen to something that Dwight Small in his book Design for Christian Marriage had to say. I want you to listen to this. Dwight Small in his book Design for Christian Marriage said, and I quote, a Christian marriage can never fail. Let me say that again. 
He said, a Christian marriage can never fail, but people in that marriage can. And he said, if the marriage fails, it is either that they were ignorant of God's purposes or unwilling to commit themselves to it. James Dobson said life or married, married life is a marathon. He said it's not enough to make a great start toward long-term marriage. You will need the determination to keep plugging and only then will you make it to the end. And Ann Landers was exactly right when she said that a successful marriage is not a gift, it is an achievement. I agree that if there is to be this bond, I believe every person in this room today wants to have a relationship with someone that is so deep and so intense that you become as one, that you're so bonded together that the bond that you have is inseparable, that you love each other so deeply that marriage is such a satisfying, gratifying, edifying relationship that nothing can tear you apart. I believe that's what you want, that I want you to understand something today. You can have that, but it takes commitment to have that kind of marriage. Are you with me? Let me give you three things. I want you to jot these down. Three commitments I want you to make. To have this kind of bond, then you look at the text and the context, I find there are three things that you must make a commitment to to have this kind of a bond. The first one is this. There must be a commitment to a loving marriage. There must be a commitment to a loving marriage. Look at Ephesians 5. We've already looked at it. And the context of Ephesians 5, 31, where we're told husband and wife are to be glued together. We're in the context there. We're also told that husbands and there's to be a love, a certain kind of love to exist in a marriage. Verse 25, we looked at it, husband, love your wives. Verse 33, let every one of you in particular so love his wife. We've already considered this love, so I'm not going to say, much, say that much about it except to say that we should be committed to a marriage that is filled with love. There must be this commitment for this kind of love. Someone has said that wives are the opposite of fishermen. They brag about the ones that got away and complain about the ones they caught. Can I get an amen right there? But may I say that marriage is to be that kind and be filled with that kind of love, a caring love, a romantic love as we've looked at, that makes us grateful for our spouse and so happy with that person. That there is, room in our, there is no room in our heart for anyone else. There is no desire for anyone else. But we're in, so in love with one another that this is a person that you are grateful for and glad to be with. As we've thought about in our past studies, there are times when the love that we have for one another grows a little bit cold. We talked about romantic love and caring love. And a caring love, as we saw in the first message, is a love whereby you make the effort to meet the needs of someone else. When the Bible said, husbands love your wives, it's talking about you taking the, making the decision and taking the steps to meet the needs in someone else's life. Whereas romantic love is when somebody meets needs in our life. Caring love is when I look at my wife and say, there are certain needs my wife have, has, and I am going to see to it that those needs are met in her life. But romantic love is when I look at her and I still get those tingles. Romantic love is when I still get excited. Romantic love is when she comes by and blows in my ear, say amen right there, and I get those kind of things. It's those kind of things. That's romantic love. But as you know, there are times in your marriage that that romantic love gets a little cold. 
And even the love that you have for one another, we might put it this way, those feelings are not as strong and as intense as they used to be. I think about something I ran across this week that C.S. Lewis had to say about marriage, and I thought this to be fascinating. I want you to listen to what he said about marriage. He said, every marriage seems to have its periods of death as well as resurrection. He said that every marriage seems to have its periods of death as well as resurrection. And he attributed so much divorce among Christians so they're not waiting out that deadly period, those winter months of marriage, until the spring or the resurrection arrives. And he's exactly right. We would all be less than honest this morning if we did not say that there were times in our marriage when we went through those winter months. There were those spring times. I mean, when you looked at her, you mailed it. And when she looked at you, she come for you 90 miles an hour. You know what I'm talking about? I don't believe some of you do. Say amen right there. <laughs> but there's those spring times when you had those feelings. But then there's those winter months. But what we often do is we take those winter months and we say, well, I don't love him or I don't love her anymore, and we move on. Instead of waiting and realizing those are phases of marriage, but there's a springtime when once again those feelings will flourish and there will be those feelings of romantic love. I think about one lady I read about, and she likened her marriage to a lilac bush in her garden. And she said when it's bare and brittle during the wintertime, she doesn't pull it out and then plant a new one. But instead, she lets it live through that dormant period. And in the next spring, her lilac bush has not only grown, but it's more beautiful than ever. I'm talking about making this commitment in your life that we're going to have a loving relationship. And there's this commitment here that the love that we have for one another is not going to hinge or operate or be dictated by what we feel. But it's going to be dictated by this decision I have made. I am going to love my wife. We're going to love one another, as Ephesians 5 talks about. Winners will come in a marriage, but when a couple is committed to having a loving marriage, then you'll survive the winter times in marriage. Am I not right? Say amen. We get a second thing here. Not only must there be a commitment to a loving marriage, but there must also be a commitment to a lasting marriage. Again, you look at the words cleave and join together. And again, they describe a relationship so bonded together that that relationship is inseparable. Jesus had, this, had these verses in mind in Matthew 19, 6, when he said, Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. And what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, what Jesus was saying is that no one or nothing should be able to divide the marriage relationship. Now, you listen to me this morning. A couple going into marriage ought to go into marriage with this attitude. This is for life. And you that are married this morning, you ought to say, this marriage, it is going to work. Separation is not an issue. Separation is not an option. This marriage is going to work. And I would say to many of you today that maybe you had a bad marriage. And you're in a second marriage. You ought to say, by the grace of God, this marriage is not going to be like the first marriage that this marriage is going to be the kind of marriage that God wants us to have. We're going to make this one work. Now, don't be like the old widower that had just married a young bride. It's back in the 1800s, and they left the church for home in an old wagon pulled by a mule. And within a few hundred yards of the church, the mule stumbled. And the old farmer said, that's once. Well, his bride didn't understand what he meant, but being young and shy, she didn't ask about the matter. 
few minutes later, the mule stumbled again. He said, now that's twice. Well, his new wife was even more curious than before, but she still had her, held her tongue. And just as they pulled in view of the old farmhouse that was to become her home, the mule stumbled again, and he said, that's three times. He reached under his seat, pulled out a shotgun, climbed down from the wagon, and shot the mule dead. Well, his wife, horrified, she looked at him, she said, what in the world are you doing? Why would you shoot that poor mule for stumbling? And he said, now that's one. Well, I, well, I want to say that a marriage relationship is where you don't make any plans for separation, but there's a commitment. A commitment for a lasting marriage. Marriage is a relationship where you come and say, this is what we're doing and this is going to be for life. Now, follow me. Now, as every one of you know this morning, that somewhere that kind of commitment is going to be seriously challenged. You'll say, I'm making a commitment that I'm going to have a lasting marriage. There will be times when your commitment to stay together will be strained and it will be stretched to its limits. Norman Wright, who has written many, many books on marriage and on the family. In fact, we use his series. If you've gone through our premarital uh, classes here, then you are familiar with the name Norman Wright. We use his uh, program called Before You Say I Do. And one of the things we do here is, one of the things possibly we set up here a number of years ago is that nobody is married in these buildings or nobody is married by me or the staff that does not go through premarital counseling. If you don't want to go through it, then you don't get married in this building and you don't get married by me. That's just something we did. It's a policy we set and whatever. If I'm gone, you can change it, but that's the way it's going to be as long as I'm here. Say amen. Because we just feel that it's very, very important. But they, that's a series they're familiar with. But he's got, I've written so many books, has so many resources on marriage. But he wrote a book entitled The Pillars of Marriage. And in that book, he talks about how all marriages have ups and downs. Some can be avoided, some cannot, he writes. No matter how deep your love for each other, certain phases of marriage tend to create difficulties for a couple. But anyway, in the book, The Pillars of Marriage, he describes phases that marriages go through. And he describes six stages that marriages go through. And I'm going to put them on the screen here, just the uh, stage itself, and I'll fill in the blanks there, and you may make some notes from it. But he talks about every couple, and he assumes assumes that a couple is getting married in their early 20s. And he said if they get married in their early 20s, they will go through at least six stages in their marriage. He said the first stage is between the ages of 22 and 28. And he describes this stage as one of youthful vigor and enthusiasm that gives a stability to handle disappointment. Since there's very little marital history, then there's little from the past to influence the couple or for them to focus upon. But he shows that studies show that during this time, this first stage there, that's when the honeymoon glow disappears. And that's when the happiness disappears in the marriage. That's the first stage when age of 22 and 28. And he also describes how during this stage the first child arrives. And when the first child arrives, then marital satisfaction tends to decline. And the marital conflicts that are most likely to occur at this time are in-law relationships, finances, the stress of caring for young children, and outside friendships that are carried over from their single life. And he said the couples that are most likely to be affected are those who have, are still emotionally tied to their parents and have not fully developed their own emotional ties in their marriage. That's the first stage, phase, that's ages 22 through 28. He said the second stage in marriage is between the ages of 29 and 32. And he describes how this can be a very difficult time for both individuals, both the wife 
as she cares for a growing family, feels like she's trapped. And a husband begins to feel the pressure of demands at home and progressing in his profession or vocation. And this pressure on both fronts leaves both husband and wife, as Norman Wright says, vulnerable to an affair. And he said, this is a time when each may be prone to blame the other for their trouble and for their stresses. That's between the ages of 29 through 32. The third stage in marriage is between the ages of 33 and through 39. And he said, this can be a more settled time as children are growing and the couple is working toward financial stability. And he says that if the marriage is a good one, then the couple has learned many methods by which to handle the day-by-day difficulties that arise. But he also said this is a time when conflict over family, control of family decisions can emerge, which often reflect a difference in values and goals. And he said spouses may feel single even though married. There's an emotional divorce from each other that is very common during this stage. And he says it is very dangerous in this time that some kind of outside activity or interest will drain the intense emotional investment that would otherwise be invested and directed toward that partner. The fourth stage, he says, between the ages of 40 and 43. And he said, most couples at this age are the parents of teenagers. I can stop there. That's enough said. Can I get an amen right there? This is a time of stress because teenagers are beginning to flaunt their own budding independence. And many wives are now working, and many men have realized they've reached the limit of their potential on their job. Both of them begin to face the fact that they're getting older, but somewhere in their mad dash to make up for what they lost in the previous years, they begin to bail out of family responsibilities. And he said, if the couple has come to this stage with a poor marital relationship, he said, then at this stage, it may explode into the open. That's between the ages of 40 and 43. The fifth stage of marriage is between the ages of 44 through 53. And he said, if the previous stages of marriage have been weathered fairly peaceably and the couple has worked on building their marriage, then this can become a very satisfying time in your life. If the last child has left home, the wife and the couple have been able to deal with it, and after adjusting to the emptiness, they find this to be a very satisfying time in their experience, and they find that in some ways the children represent a bit of a barrier in their home, and with the barrier gone, the couple can now come closer together. Then he talks about the sixth and the final stage of marriage between the ages of 54 and 65. And he said this is when a couple reaches a time they reach a high point of satisfaction in their relationship. Companionship can increase, but he said conflicts may become intense if one in the home has been committed to a deeper relationship, but the other has continued a lifelong pattern of withdrawal. And he said, during this period, he said, there can be the highest level of satisfaction in the marriage or the greatest time of conflict in the marriage. Now, what he was saying, what was he saying in all that? He was saying that every one of our marriages go through certain stages. And every one of those stages is not without its problems. And every one of those stages is not without growing and not without the need of learning and not without the need of commitment. That every stage and phase we go through in marriage, there must be this commitment to get through each phase and to learn and grow together and be brought together in a bonding relationship. Now, I realize sometimes we get to certain stages and you may feel like it's, it's over, that it's absolutely hopeless. I think about something Terry Jeffries gave me this week. There's this man that's walking along a California beach deep in prayer. And all of a sudden, he said out, Lord, he said out loud, he said, Lord, 
grant me one wish. And the sky clattered above his head, and in a booming voice the Lord said, Because you've tried to be faithful to me in all ways, I will grant you one wish. What is your wish? And the man said, Lord, I want you to build a bridge to Hawaii so I can drive back and forth whenever I want to. The Lord said, your request is very materialistic. Think of the logistics of that kind of undertaking, the support required to reach the bottom of the Pacific, the concrete and steel it would take. I can do it, but it's hard for me to justify your desire for worldly things. He said, I want you to take a little more time and think of another wish, a wish that you think would honor and glorify me. Well, the fellow followed about for a long time. He came back and he said, Lord, he said, you know, I've been married and divorced four times. And all of my wives said I was uncaring and insensitive. I wish I could understand women. I want to know how they feel inside. I want to know what they're thinking when they give me that silent treatment. I want to know why they cry. I want to know what they mean when they say nothing. Lord, I want to know how to make a woman happy. After a few minutes, the Lord said, do you want two lanes or four lanes on that bridge? <laughs> well, now it may seem impossible, but I want you to listen to me. And there may be situations that seem hopeless, but if you'll make a commitment to a lasting marriage, you can't have a lasting marriage. Amen? A commitment to a loving marriage, a commitment to a lasting marriage, and a third and a final thought. That is a commitment to a loyal marriage. Behind the ideal of a man cleaving to his wife and this leaving and cleaving and being joined together is a loyal marriage. It is a matter of cleaving only to the one that is the husband and wife. When he talks about it being semen and together, being one flesh, there is a faithfulness, there is a fidelity there, there is a loyalty that is there. I think about a survey that was done by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago a number of years. A few years ago, Dr. Joyce Brothers came out with the claim that almost half of all wives have affairs sometime in their married life. And even as Sherry Height back in 1978, a more controversial report, said that three-fourths of all wives have an affair during the marriage. But they did this study in uh, Chicago, University of Chicago, and they had a little more encouraging news. They found in five studies done from 1988 to the present, Researchers at the Institute found that only 15% of Americans have ever cheated on the spouse. And they further discovered that in a given year, only 3 to 4% of husbands and wives are unfaithful. I'd say to you, I don't know what the correct figures are, but I'd say one thing you ought to commit yourself to in marriage is this. You're going to be loyal. You're going to be faithful. You're talking about coming together. You're cleaving together, being joined together. You make a commitment, I am going to love. My wife, I am going to love my husband. It's a commitment. Listen, separation's out the door. That's, that's a vocabulary. They don't come in our family. That's settled. We are going to have a marriage that works. Whatever it takes, whatever we've got to do, we are going to see that it works. And a commitment that says, I am going to be faithful. It's a loyal marriage. Now, what am I saying to you this morning? I'm talking about you making a commitment in your life. I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. I believe you can have good marriage. And you may be at stages in your marriage where you don't. And you may be at stages in your marriage where you feel like you'll never 
have what we had years ago. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. I believe that you can have a good marriage. I believe this Bible for one thing. And I believe that if we do what this Bible says, that I believe it works in our life even in our marriage. As I said a moment ago, apart from your relationship to Jesus Christ, there is not a relationship on the face of the earth that can be more satisfying and more gratifying and more edifying than marriage. Don't settle for anything less. Why go to heaven second class when you go first class? Enjoy it. Have a great marriage. Have a wonderful life together. Enjoy an exciting, enriching, edifying life together. That's what marriage is all about. That's what God intended marriage to be. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You can have it, but you're going to have to, first of all, make the commitments. Let's stand there.